Revelation chapter 10. Now, over the past couple of weeks in chapters 8 and 9, John has been describing... Oh, Mallet's got hands raised back there with Bibles. If anybody would like to borrow a Bible, that way you can follow along with us this morning. Uh, in chapters 8 and 9, John has been describing a second wave of a repeating cycle of seven judgments. And we saw these first in the seal judgments of chapter 6, but now we're in the trumpet judgments. And so far, this has been devastating. This is what we've seen so far, just to kind of summarize. We've seen a third of the trees and all of the green grass burned up, a third of the sea becoming blood, a third of the sea life dying. We've seen a third of the earth's fresh water supply poisoned, a third of the sun and the moon and the stars darkened. In the first half of chapter 9, we see this demonic horde of locust-like beings released upon the earth to torment men for five months. In the second half of chapter 9, we see a second horde of demonic beings released from the river Euphrates, and they are given authority to kill a third of mankind. And what's crazy is through it all, we see the repeated proclamation that more woes are coming. And the whole thing's just sort of been building like a crescendo, like a fuse is lit and the bomb is about to go off. And so what happens as we come to chapter 10 this morning, John pauses. Now, the same thing happened as we finished chapter 6 at the end of the seal judgments. That chapter concludes with this great summary judgment. John writes, when he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth. The sky receded as a scroll. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. All the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. I mean, you can just hear the finality in that. But what happens as we come to chapter 7, John completely shifts gears. And he focuses in on the 144,000 and a great multitude being saved out of the great tribulation. And then in chapter 8, John says, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And we see that same pattern this morning. John builds to a crescendo, but then hits the pause button. In fact, we could get even more specific than that. In the seal judgments, there were six that were opened. Then there's an interlude before the seventh. The same pattern repeats in the trumpet judgments. We've seen six trumpet blasts, but now there's an interlude before the seventh. David Guzik writes, these interludes serve a dramatic purpose, but also show tremendous mercy in allowing more opportunity for repentance. It is, if, it is as if God brings things to the brink, then pulls back a little to grant mankind more time to repent. By the way, we remember this is very typical of the Hebraic writing style of John's day. We talked all about this in a previous Bible study called The Different Camera Angles of the Book of Revelation. By the way, this is a good opportunity for me to remind you, if you haven't been studying with us, where you can find all of our previous studies. You can go right to our website, ccubacity.com. You can go to our YouTube channel and get caught up. But Michael Cascione, author of a book called Repetition in the Bible, reminds us, as an archaeological artifact, 
the Bible employs repetition as a highly developed Hebraic genre. Professor Peter Gentry writes, the approach in Hebrew literature is to take up a topic and develop it from a particular perspective and then stop and then take up the same theme again from another point of view. Leon Morris writes, this is typical of John's method. He goes over the ground again and again each time teaching us something new. So Revelation chapter 10 this morning, an interesting interlude. Let's dive in, verse 1. John writes, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the, sh the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. Verse 2, he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Now, as you can imagine, two very commonly asked questions when you come to this passage is, who is the mighty angel and what is the little book? And there's lots of descriptions about this angel that might cause us to think it's actually Jesus himself. For instance, he comes down from heaven. We think of Jesus coming to the earth. Jesus spoke about how he was going to come on the clouds. This angel is clothed with a cloud. In Revelation 1.16 and the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' face shone like the sun. The rainbow is associated with God's covenant to mankind. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he sets his foot down on the Mount of Olives, so it could be Jesus. But this angel also bears a striking resemblance to Michael the archangel, as described in Daniel chapter 12. There, Daniel writes, Michael stood up, the great prince who stands watch over your people. He's described as being clothed in linen, and above the waters of the river, he's associated with a book, and he even held up his right hand and his left to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, which is almost verbatim what we read about this mighty angel down in verse 5. John writes, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. So perhaps it's Michael the archangel. Of course, Daniel also wrote about a glorious man in Daniel chapter 10, who was described as clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of euphaz, his body like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And we know, by the way, that this isn't Michael in Daniel chapter 10, because just a few verses later, this angel says, Michael actually came to help him. And I would argue that the glorious man in Daniel chapter 10 isn't Jesus, because I don't believe Jesus would need help from Michael the archangel. So coming back to Revelation chapter 10, Perhaps this mighty angel is Jesus. Perhaps this mighty angel is Michael the archangel. But clearly, there are other high-ranking angels in Scripture who may appear this glorious as well. The other question people ask when we come to this passage is, what is the little book that's opened in the angel's hand? And the reality is, we don't know for sure. The Bible mentions several books that are before God. There's the book of the living. In Psalm 69, there's the book of remembrance. In Malachi 3.16, Psalm 56 says, 
Put my tears into your bottle, are they not in your book? Psalm 139 says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all written. Then, of course, there's the book of life that's talked about all throughout Scripture, Philippians 4, Revelation 3, 13, several other places. Some people argue that all of these books mentioned in Scripture actually are the book of life. But Revelation chapter 20 seems to draw a distinction. You don't have to turn there, but we'll put the reference for you on the big screen. John there, Revelation 20, writes, and this is after the millennium, He says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And then he says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by the things which were written in the books. Now, this seems to call to mind what Daniel wrote about in Daniel chapter 7. In writing about the last days, Daniel said, I watched until thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated, A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousands, time ten thousand. The court was seated and books were opened. Some commentators refer to this as the book of deeds or the book of eternity. Matthew Henry suggests that these are the book of God's omniscience, which include his record of our words and deeds and the record of the sinner's conscience now exposed. Joseph Seiss said, myriad human beings have lived and died of whom the world knows nothing, but the lives they lived, the deeds they wrought, and the thoughts and tempers still stand written where the memory of them cannot perish. Not a human being has ever breathed earth's atmosphere whose career is not traced at full length in the books of eternity. Warren Wearsby adds, that one of the books opened will most likely be the Bible. He says, Jesus said, the one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. He says, there is a book of mankind's works which are insufficient to save anyone, but necessary for determining the unbeliever's punishment in hell. So I say all that to say this. The Bible mentions several books, and we're not 100% sure which book this is mentioned here in the hand of the mighty angel, whether it's any of them. John Walvoord writes, the specific contents of this little book are nowhere revealed in the book of Revelation. Now, if the mighty angel of Revelation chapter 10 is Jesus, it's possible the little book could be the same as the seven-sealed scroll of Revelation chapter 5. It should be noted, however, that John does use a different word for book than he does for scroll, and I think that's important. But David Guzik writes, it's probably best to see them as different, but probably closely related. Perhaps the little book is a shortened version of the disposition of all things, Adam Clark writes, meaning probably some design of God, long concealed, but now about to be made manifest. Towards the end of verse 3, John writes, when the mighty angel cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. This may relate to the voice of God that we read about in Psalm 29. There, 
specifically the phrase, the voice of the Lord appears seven times. In verse four, John says, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Which if you know anything about me, that would drive me absolutely nuts, right? I mean, it'd be one thing. It wouldn't be so bad if John didn't say, I was about to write it, you know? If you know me, you cannot come up to me and say, hey, Kevin, I need to talk to you about something, but not right now. We'll talk later. Because then I'm like, no, 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 you have to tell me now, because if you don't tell me, this is going to keep me awake tonight. But all joking aside, this, this verse does remind us of something very important, and that is even though we're told a lot of things about the end times, we are not told everything. This verse specifically reminds us that John was about to write something down. But then the instruction is, don't write that. Leon Morris said, let us not proceed as though all has been revealed to us. In verse 5, John writes, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, Adam Clark says, to show he had the command of each. John says he raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Back in chapter 6, when we saw the fifth seal opened, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their testimony, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And to them we read, a white robe was given, and it was told to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. But this morning, the answer to that question is, delay no longer. And the idea here in the language is, there is no turning back. Verse 7 says, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now, when we see the word mystery, we have a tendency to think murder mystery or something like that, something that can be figured out through investigation or by following a certain set of clues. But that's not what the Bible has in mind when it mentions a mystery. It's the Greek word mysterion, and it refers to a truth that had been previously hidden. Now, it was there all along, but it was just hidden from us. We cannot understand it unless it has been made known to us by God. Now, Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew chapter 13, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to the others it has not been given. And there's quite a few mysteries that the Bible talks about. Romans 11.25, for instance, it refers to the blindness that lays upon the understanding of the Jewish people that that is a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15 says our bodily transformation, either when we die or at the rapture of the church, that that is a mystery. Ephesians 5 says the relationship between a husband and a wife is a mystery as it is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Ephesians 3, 
says God's purpose for the church is a mystery. Colossians 1.27 says Christ dwelling in our heart is a mystery. Colossians speaks of the mystery of God, the mystery of Christ. 2 Thessalonians speaks of the mystery of lawlessness. 1 Timothy speaks of the mystery of faith and the mystery of godliness. 27 times the New Testament talks specifically about mysteries or previously hidden truths. Now, if it's talked about that many times, it's important that we have an understanding of what the Bible is talking about when it refers to a mystery. This, these are things that were previously hidden, but now God has made them known to and in and by and through the church, through his word and through his spirit. Now, what specifically is the mystery that's talked about here in verse 7? We don't know. It's a mystery, right? It could be any of these things. Uh, it could be all of them combined. One commentator writes, in this context, the mystery of God probably refers to the unfolding of his resolution of all things. Possibly the mystery regards the great question, why does God allow Satan and man to rebel and go their own way? The idea may be that this unanswered question is coming to an end under the rule of Jesus. God is bringing to pass the gathering together of all things in one in Jesus. God freely acknowledges that life today is full of mysteries, but it will not always be so. A day will come when all the questions of this age will be answered. John continues in verse 8. He says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke, to me again and said, go take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. In verse nine, John says, so I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. John says, so I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Now, we have as an object lesson here this morning, a cupcake. This is what the kids are making in CCYC Kids. I, I love the creativity. This is actually a paper scroll that the kids are actually going to eat. So I'm just going to eat this. In fact, I think we have a picture of a uh, Culver, he didn't know he was going to be in our service today. We've already recruited Culver. He was our, our guinea pig during the week to make sure if he ate the paper scroll, he would survive. So he's still here this morning, so we're probably okay. Hmm, that is really sweet. Whew. There's multiple places in Scripture where we're told that the Word of God is sweeter than honey or sweet as honey. Psalm 19, David says, the judgments of the Lord are sweeter than honey. Psalm 119 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But there's a specific Old Testament passage that comes to mind as I read this passage in Revelation chapter 10. In Ezekiel chapter 2, the Lord is about to send the prophet to Israel. Check out what he says. He says, open your mouth and eat what I give you. And Ezekiel says, now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. 
There was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Ezekiel says, So I opened my mouth. He caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll. He says, So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. But then the Lord says to him, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. And Ezekiel writes, So the Spirit lifted me up, took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. I don't know if you saw all the similarities between the passage in Ezekiel chapter 2 and the passage in Revelation chapter 10. First of all, both John and Ezekiel are shown a book. And if the little book of Revelation chapter 10 is indeed the scroll of Revelation chapter 5, it's interesting then that both the scroll or the book that Ezekiel sees and the scroll or the book that John sees are both written on the inside and on the outside. Both writings contain woes. Both John and Ezekiel are instructed to eat the scroll. Neither do this without some kind of prompting from the Lord or one of his angels. To both of them, the experience is initially sweet, but result in some kind of bitterness. And it wasn't until they both ate that they're both sent to prophesy and bring God's message to a people group. It's also interesting, too, that both John and Ezekiel essentially receive these instructions after they've both had visions of very similar heavenly creatures. In Revelation 4, John speaks of four living creatures. He says the first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Ezekiel says he saw four living creatures, and each one had four faces, the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion, each of the four had the face of an ox, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Now, are John and Ezekiel experiencing the exact same thing? I don't know. I think a more important question that we should ask ourselves this morning is, have you ever had an experience like this when it comes to the Word of God? And if you think, Kevin, I don't really know what you're talking about, then I'd say the answer is you probably haven't. This metaphor is used all throughout Scripture. God is not calling us to have a surface-level experience with his word, where we just kind of taste the word of God, like a free sample when you're in Sam's Club, right? He's not calling us to a free sample of his word. He's calling us to a deep, internal diet and digestion of his word. Job said, I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. When tempted with physical food in the wilderness, you know this, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. James chapter 1 warns us not to be hearers only of the word of God, but to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. In many of his parables, 
Jesus talks about the word of God as being a seed. And not to be too graphic, but I am going to make this application. During the reproductive process, the seed of the man is deposited into the woman, and one of the very early stages of pregnancy is implementation, during which the seed attaches, adheres, and invades the female. Like Ezekiel is told, fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. Now, does that make you uncomfortable? Well, check it out. This is the kind of intimate, invasive, personal, up-close experience that God wants you to have when it comes to his word. We are not here as believers, kind of the way you go to a wine tasting and you just kind of nose the aroma, right? Or to swirl the word of God around your mouth and just go home and forget about it. God wants the seed of his word to implant within our hearts. He wants it to invade. It's like we're going to talk about next week where we have our family seed planting day. He desires his word to attach and adhere in our lives. Jeremiah the prophet said, your words were found and I ate them. He devoured God's word. He fed on it. He took it in. He ingested it. He assimilated it. He absorbed it. He broke it down. He allowed it to nourish him and fortify him and build him up in his innermost being. One author writes, this type of eating called hierophagy is a powerful literary tool that ancient authors used to signify the transformation of the eater in a way that associates them with the divine realm. Tasting and ingesting otherworldly food dissolves the boundaries between heaven and earth in the same way that the mouth and stomach break down food and dissolve it in the body. Whether a scroll, cup, or other heavenly morsel, biblical authors were making use of a known trope to locate their characters close to God and imbue them with divine authority. Now look, this idea is not foreign to us. Okay, How many times have you ever had somebody tell you something or ask you a question, and look, you heard it, right? But your first response was, I need to think about that. I need to take some time and process that. That is what every single one of us should be doing when it comes to the Word of God. When we leave this place, having taken it in, right, that's not the end of the process. That's the beginning of the process. It's like when you get up from a physical meal. When you get up from a physical meal, that's not the end of the process. That's the beginning of the process. And now digestion starts to take place where internally you start to break down that food and absorb from it what you need to keep you healthy and strong. I've never forgotten this. I was thinking about this yesterday as I was preparing for today's Bible study. I'm going off script for a second, Jeremy. <clears throat> um, 1995. So, you know, almost 30 years ago. Was not on staff yet as a pastor. Was just going to Calvary Chapel. And me and some friends had started going to church at the same time. Went to the same church together. 
And uh, I'll never forget, we were sitting in Bill and Charlene Castle's kitchen. We were on South Rockbridge Road in Clarkston, Georgia. It's about five or six o'clock on a Sunday evening. And I remember there was kind of a pause in the conversation. And I made the comment, I said, that was a really good Bible study this morning, wasn't it? And one of my friends goes, what was it about? Now look, I'm only inserting myself into that story because it happened to me, right? But it could be anyone. Do you understand that when we leave here today, if you don't remember what we talked about, you are exactly what Scripture is trying to warn against in being a forgetful hearer. If you can't leave from here and start to digest the Word of God and think about it, you've completely missed the point. God wants us to have an invasive experience when it comes to his word. He wants the seed of his word to penetrate our heart and take root and from within begin to produce seeable, measurable fruit that starts to come out of our lives. And I would just say this. People ask me sometimes, they say, Kevin, how do I know whether or not I'm doing what you're talking about? How do I know like where I'm at in terms of my relationship with the Word of God? I would say this. If you don't spend as much time thinking or praying about the Word of God after you're done reading it, you're probably not doing what we're talking about. Like if you just read the Word of God and then you close it up and that's it. Like if you don't take the Word of God, read it, and then pause and think about it, and pray about it, then guys, listen, as your shepherd, you're going to become that person who, when somebody comes to you and says, I was reading this in the Bible, and I read this, what does this mean? And you go, I don't know. God wants us to know what his word means. And I would also say this, if you can look at your life, if we, I include myself in this, if we can look at our lives and there is not noticeable, measurable, seeable fruit coming out of our lives, then we're probably not assimilating the word of God. We're probably not processing it and digesting it the way that God desires. Because in his parable of the soils, Jesus says, Four types of people, but only one of them receives the seed and then begins to go and bear fruit. That's who Jesus desires us to be. Now, holding to this imagery, kind of of the implementation and the seed, right? You ever heard of morning sickness? John says in verse 10, I took the book out of the angel's hand and I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. John's initial sweetness with the word of God turns sour. Anyone who has truly assimilated God's word knows this to be true. One author writes, this is easily understood by every spiritual believer. The opening of some new truth to the soul, the perception of its character and beauty, is ever a delightful experience, but when it is accepted in the power of the Spirit, it gradually brings death. 
upon all that we are and becomes bitter as it discovers to us the real nature of many things we had hitherto cherished and in separating us from them produces in us a growing conformity to Christ. Notice that it's only after John has ingested the book that the angel says, you must prophesy again to many peoples, nations, kings, and tongues. The same thing happened with Ezekiel. He said, son of man, feed your belly, fill your stomach with the scroll. And then he says, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And then a few verses later, God says, you will be my mouth. You cannot proclaim God's word if you do not process God's word. It's only after we have taken God's word in and been changed by it that we can go and be God's mouthpiece to this world. See, many Christians have memorized God's word without having personally submitted to it as authority in their life. Never forget, Satan had God's word memorized, and he used it but Jesus was submitted to it as authority in his life. Here's another great quote. We're never qualified to be witnesses until we have gone through the process herein indicated. As it was not enough for Ezekiel or John to hear or even to understand the message they received, so it must not be sufficient for us to be attracted by the beauty of new teachings and to find them sweeter than honey to our taste we must be content to wait until the truth has worked its way into our innermost being so that having received the testimony, we are enabled from our own experience to set our seal that God is true. What a powerful word this morning. Okay, next week, as I already mentioned, we're going to take a short break from the book of Revelation for the next of our family services. Excited to hear from Pastor Austin. But then in two weeks' time, we'll be back in the book of Revelation for the two witnesses. So I encourage everybody to go ahead and read chapter 11 for that study. We're going to have our worship team come up, close us out with a song or two. Um, and I just, you know, to me, what we're about to do is, is actually probably the most important part of our time together, which is where we actually allow the Holy Spirit a few moments to really work his word into our hearts. Um, so I just want to ask everybody to, to really be mindful of, of this time and just give everybody an opportunity, a few moments to allow the Holy Spirit to draw them to Jesus. There may be people here this morning who don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And I want to encourage you folks, if that's you, that before you leave, you come forward and you find one of our prayer partners or you find one of the pastors, we would love to pray with you or talk with you more about who Jesus is. Or if there's just a specific prayer need that you have in your life, we have prayer partners available after this time and we'd love to pray with you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for an opportunity to approach your word this morning. We thank you for the power and truth contained therein. And we just want to ask that you would use it to change us today and make us more like you. As John the Baptist said, Lord, let us decrease that you would increase. We, we know that we need and the world needs to see more of Jesus. 
We love you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence today. In your name we ask it.